Father, we come together tonight and we thank you for this time that we have together that we can uh, study your word and fellowship together and learn things together and uh, minister to each other. And thank you so much for this church and, and the people that you've blessed us with here. And, and uh, ask that you keep us safe, help this uh, lesson tonight be accurate and clear, and, um, and just help us get a lot out of it. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, tonight what we're going to do, as you can see, there's the title is this, There Arose Another Generation. Da, da, da. Way back in March of 2016, some of you may remember or may not remember, um, I presented some research that came out of a book called Cultural Captives, um, which was written in 2012 by a guy named Stephen Cable, who was with Probe, Probe Ministries. Probe is an apologetics and worldview um, group that's based in Plano and they began in like 1973 and they, they do a lot of worldview uh, research and work and, and they're a pretty good resource for things like that and that book focused on uh, several surveys of young this, this covered kind of young adults in America and it provided a, a pretty comprehensive summary of what uh, these young adults in America uh, believed um, it, it talked about what they believed as far as basic doctrine, uh, what their religious practices were, um, what they believed about uh, sexual issues, abortion, you know, homosexuality, science. Kind of a, it, it was pretty comprehensive, like I said. And then in 2020, Probe did uh, another survey. And so tonight, I thought it'd be good. I read I read that survey, and I thought it'd be good to kind of update some of the stuff that we had talked about back in 2016 and see where things have gone since then. So let's talk about first what the earlier survey covered. Uh, back when, when they wrote the book, there were several surveys that Probe used to produce this data they produced back in 2010. Um, and one of these surveys was done by Barna Research uh, for, for Probe, and that, that survey I'm going to call the 2010 survey. So it was a 2010 survey that was done for uh, by Barna for Probe. And then Probe completed another survey in 2020 and I'm going to call that obviously the 2020 survey. So as far as what the surveys covered, uh, the 2010 survey, this one up here, it covered 813 adults ages 18 to 40 who professed to be quote, born again. It was nationwide, and they looked at religious beliefs, beliefs and practices. And the 2020 survey covered 717 adults, and the age is a little different. It's a little older, 18 to 55, who professed to be born again, and that was nationwide. And once again, they looked at religious beliefs and practices. So what we're going to look at tonight is what the surveys uh, reveal about people who, who probe referred to as, as quote born again, and in my mind that that covers people who are most likely to be believers in the survey. So the answers to these questions are going to be. You can assume that they were they were mostly believers answering them. We're going to cover that in a minute. Um, so we're going to look at what. We're going to look at three areas. We're going to look at worldview, 
we're going to look at Jesus Christ, and we're going to look at uh, moral decision making, kind of what these people thought about things in these areas. And it wasn't the same people that were surveyed in these two surveys. It wasn't like the 2020 survey tracked the same people that were surveyed in 2010. It's different, different people, but age groups. That's what we're talking about is age groups. So we're going to be focusing on people who are most likely to believers. And so uh, Probe defined these in a way, they, he called, they called them born again. And to be categorized as born again, uh, a person had to answer two questions in, in certain ways. And these are the questions. It says, one of the questions was, have you ever made a personal commitment to Jesus Christ that is still important in your life today? That's number one. And the answer should be, had to, had to be lit, yes. And what describes your belief is what will happen to you after you die. And the answer had to be, I will go to heaven because I confessed my sins and accepted Jesus Christ as my Savior. Now, if a person in the survey answered both of those questions those ways, they were considered to be, quote, born again for purposes of this survey. Now, if you interpret these questions as a description of the gospel... Uh, there's a problem, obviously, because a personal commitment to Jesus Christ that is still important in your life today is not a requirement for justification. I mean, we all know that. Uh, it's not justification. It's an issue of sanctification. And confession of sins is not required for justification because numerous passages we know uh, make it abundantly clear that's, that all that's required for justification is belief in Jesus Christ. So from a gospel presentation perspective, it's unfortunate that Probe used, you know, constructed these questions the way they did, but uh, they're using these questions to try to identify people who most likely would be believers um, out of all the people that they, you know, they surveyed, that they gathered this group out of. And so in a way, it kind of helps with that. I mean, you would expect that if someone would answer question number two this way, it would identify someone who was a believer, those people who believed in Christ. And if someone asked, answered this question number one this way, you would think that that would identify people who may be somewhat inclined to think of themselves as followers of Christ. So a you can look at it like this. A person who truthfully answered both of these questions uh, in these ways would most likely, most likely be a believer who has some inclination to, to follow Christ. That's kind of what you get out of this. And I think that was the intent of the survey was try to narrow that down some. I mean, it's really hard for me. I mean, who can know who somebody really is, whether somebody's really a believer? You don't know their heart, so you've got to ask questions to try to figure it out. These are the questions that they, that they asked. Um, and I also need to point out that, that the analysis that we're going to look at tonight, uh, it's going to exclude Catholics who, uh, who probe categorized as, as born again uh, based on their responses to these questions. Uh, we're going to limit it to born again, we're going to call born again Protestants because there should be more theological agreement and consistency if the ways of thought that come from Catholic theology uh, are excluded. So for the rest of this evening, what we're going to look at is data as it pertains to born-again Protestants. That's kind of the category that we're looking at, what they called, what Probe called, born-again 
Protestants. And I think I've alluded to this. I don't think it's correct to assume that all the people that probe categorize as born-again Protestants are believers. Uh, there probably are some in the group who aren't. Though it's, it's kind of interesting that an unbeliever would answer these questions the, the way a believer would. But uh, like, like I said, I mean, my assumption is going to be that most of these people are believers. And if that's the case, you would expect that most of this group of born-again Protestants to have beliefs that are consistent with the Bible. And we're going to see whether or not that's the case. So let's look at some of the results of the survey. One question I wondered about was, between 2010 and 2020, has the proportion of the believers between the ages of 18 to 40 changed in relation to the population of, of the United States? So according to Probe, this proportion, the proportion of people in the United States that, that are possibly believers, has remained stable across that decade with maybe a slight decline over the past you know, slight decline uh, possible uh, there's been a steady decline in the age group of 18 to 30 the, the really young ones the overage group the, over, the, the group over that age um, that tends to be holding steady according to them and so that may indicate that some in the younger age group may be becoming believers as they get a little bit older. I don't know, but it's, it's holding steady, but the 18 to 30s are somewhat declining. And also, according to Probe, around 20% of the American population may be, quote, what they call born-again Protestants, if you, you know, kind of apply the percentages. Um, other surveys indicate a potentially higher number uh, if born-again Catholics are included. Um, but some of these other surveys, they use pretty broad definitions, and so their numbers, I would bet, would be overstated. Um, those surveys might indicate there's between 25 and 30 percent. But whether the number is 20 percent or 30 percent, it looks like the proportion of believers in the United States has been somewhat stable over the past decade. Now, it's not good that this number isn't increasing. Um, and it's worse that the proportion of the, of the born-again Protestants in this 18 to 30 age group, the younger ones, uh, is showing kind of a steady decline. That's, that's not good either. Um, and if you put the percentages to our population numbers, uh, in 2020, the number of people in the United States over the age of 18 was about 258 million people. And so if 20% of these people are believers... Then you got about 52.6, 53 million people in the United States may be believers. And that sounds like a pretty big number, but consider this. The, the number of people who are atheist, agnostic, or what Probe called nothing in particular, increased from about 20% of the population in 2010 to over 45%. It's exploded. There's about 116 million of them, if you apply that to, to the... Uh, population in the United States. And then the number of people who hold to, quote, what they called other religions, uh, like Islam or Mormonism or what other weirdness there is out there, uh, that increased from 7% of the population to about 10%. So there's about 25, you know, 26 million of them. And both of those groups seem to be growing. 
So our country is becoming, and probably and it already is, I mean, based on those numbers, it's a large mission field uh, with approximately 55% of the people either being atheist, agnostic, nothing in particular, or other religions. That's a lot. I mean, it's majority. It's way more than, than we have. Can God use 20% of the population to influence our culture? Sure. Yeah. Jesus was one. <laughs> started with Christ. And the apostles were 12. You know, the church grew from that. Um, but in order for that 20% to be used, you know, we all have to be faithful. And so that's kind of get us, that's going to get us into the, some of these other questions probe, probe um, asked. So here's another one. The probe surveys, they attempted to identify the extent born-again Protestants held to what they called a, a Christian biblical worldview. And, so, and they divided that into two parts. Uh, one they called a basic Christian worldview, and another one they called um, an expanded Christian worldview. Now here's the questions. This is the questions they used for the basic biblical worldview. And a person who answered one of these, all four of these questions in these ways probe categorized as having a basic biblical worldview so they were which of the following descriptions come closest to what you personally believe to be true about God God is the all powerful all knowing perfect creator of the universe who rules the world today the Bible is totally accurate in all of its teaching strongly agree if a person is generally good enough or does enough good things for others during their life they will earn a place in heaven disagree strongly and when he lived on earth, Jesus Christ committed sins like other people. And that should have been answered disagree strongly. So looking at those questions, I mean, they aren't, you know, deep, you know, theological doctrines. They're very, very basic. And you would expect a very high percentage of born-again Protestants to have answered them correctly. And here's the results of the survey. Look over here. What you're going to be looking at is this portion right here. Can y'all see that? Okay. This blue are born-again Protestants from 18 to 29. These are the born-again Protestants from 30 to 39, and, and the gray is the 40 to, to 55. So look at it. You got 32% of born-again Protestants under the age of 30 that answered all four of those questions correctly. You've got 30% of the middle age group, the 30 to 39s. And then you've got a little higher percentage for the older ones, the 40, you know, 41, 42% there. So how's that changed? Let's look and see how that's changed since 2010. Look at this over here. This is the 18 to 29s in 2010, and this is the 18 to 29s in 2020. A precipitous drop. I mean, that's how many answered the question in 2010. That's our 32% in uh, 2020. This is the uh, 30 to 40 age group in 2010, and that's the 30 to 40 age group in 20. I mean, it's dropped tremendously. Um, so this indicates that the proportion of born-again Protestants who hold to a basic biblical worldview has declined about 10 percentage points over the 18 to 29 age group 
and about 18 percentage points in the 30 to 39 age group. And so think about that. Only, only 30 to 40 percent of born-again Protestants, most of whom you would expect to be believers, answered all four of those basic questions the right way or biblically. And here's another interesting, or it stunned me, 84% of them believe that God was the all-powerful, all-knowing, perfect creator of the universe who rules the world today, that question. 81% of them agreed with that, but 16% of them didn't. So that could be, I mean, something's wrong. I mean, that could be indicative of the proportion of those people who are not believers, or uh, it could mean that there's some really messed up believers out there. Um, so, okay, let's go to look at the expanded worldview. So think of those four questions that we just talked about, and these are they added two more questions to categorize people as whether or not they had an expanded worldview. And here's the two additional questions. The devil or Satan is not a real being, but is a symbol of evil. Yet they expected to disagree strongly there. And then some people believe that there's a moral tr- there are moral truths, such as murder is always wrong, that are true for everyone, everywhere, and for all time. Others believe that moral truth always depends upon circumstances. Do you believe that there are moral truths that are unchanging, or does the moral truth always depend on circumstances? So that's a question, obviously, about absolute truth and versus relativism. So the expected answer would be there are moral truths that are true for everyone, everywhere, and for all time. So here's what the responses showed. Look at this side now. Okay, now these are the people, and you're looking over here, these are the people of the born-again Protestants that, that answered all those six questions the way they should have been answered in a, in a biblical way. So you got like 22% under the age of 30 that answered all six. You've got about 19% between 30 and 40 that answered all six. And then the 40s and 50s come in a little better at about 30, you know, 30%, 31%. And with, I'm not going to talk about this, but look at these other, like other Protestant and Catholic. I mean, that's what we're dealing with out there. That's abysmal. Um, so... The next thing we can look at is, um, let me make sure I know where I am. Okay, so the comparison between 2010. This compares 2010, and you look at this side of the chart here. And once again, I mean, you see a pretty substantial drop-off, about, oh, seven percentage points here between the, uh, the 18 to 20s, and about, oh, looks like, what is this, 16 percentage points between the... Um, between the, oh, the 30 to 40 age group. So everything's dropping. I mean, as far as people's knowledge of, of doctrine and, and what, what Probe called this worldview. Um, another interesting thing, I don't have a chart for it, but uh, only 40% of the born-again Protestants answered at least, they got five out of six. Okay, so 40 of them, 40%, five out of six. 55 of them, got four out of six. 82 got at least two of them right. And then there's 18% of them that couldn't get two of those questions right. So 
once again, I mean, it could be reflective of that 18% of the proportion of unbelievers in the group, or once again, just they don't know anything. So, to summarize this part of the data, I mean, out of born-again Protestants, people who say they've accepted Christ as their Savior, you know, and they've made a personal commitment to Jesus Christ that's still important to their life today, we get this. Only about 30, for, 30 to 40 percent uh, believed all of these things. That God is the all-powerful, all-knowing, perfect creator of the universe. And we've already been over these questions. 30 to 40 percent believed those basic biblical worldview questions. And only about 20 to 30 percent of them believed those, those basic worldview questions and those other, the, the additional two questions. Okay? Not even one-third of born-again Protestants got all these basic things right. And the numbers show that these, this, this, these numbers are declining. They're, it's getting worse. And that's really scary. Something else they looked at. Is Jesus the only way? The only way to heaven? You know, John fourteen six. Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Do these born-again Protestants believe what Christ said about himself? So here's the two questions that Probe asked to try to ferret that out. Number one, they made a statement. They said, Muhammad, Buddha, and Jesus all taught valid ways to God. And the answers there were disagree strongly to agree strongly. The second question was, I believe that the only path to a true relationship with God is through Jesus Christ. And the answers there range from disagree strongly to agree strongly. So... You would expect a believer to strongly disagree with number one and agree strongly with the second. And a, and a person who believes in number one, that they all taught valid ways to God, would be considered what's called a pluralist. They, many, there are many ways to get to heaven. They're all valid. Um, so here's the survey results for question number one. Once again, this chart, we're looking at this side right here. The 18 to 29s, there were, let's see, I think this is strongly, 39% in this group disagreed strongly about Muhammad, Buddha, and Jesus all teaching valid ways to God. About 42% looks like in the next age group disagreed strongly with it, and you know about 48% in the higher age, in the older ones. Uh, disagreed strongly. Look at this. This is the range of answers um, in these age groups. If you look at this little bar right here, this blue part right here, from here to here, that's the group out of all these born-again Protestants that strongly disagree. And then you have this right here that's uh, this little orange part they just disagreed. They didn't strongly disagree. They just disagreed. So you got about 55% of these people that disagreed, either strongly or just disagreed, with that statement uh, about multiple ways to heaven. And then, crazily enough, you got about 25% here in this gray that agreed. That's significant. That's a, that's a big number. Um, and then you got this... You know, a decent percentage up here that's, you know, they don't know. <laughs> that's 
That's like oh, 43% of these born-again Protestants either agree that there's multiple ways to heaven or they don't know. That's a, that's a big percentage out of this, this group that you would expect to answer differently. So, second question. Uh, it was, how did, how did they respond to, I believe that the only path to a true relationship with God is through Jesus Christ. So here's the result here. This is a little better. 18 to 29, you got about oh, 65% in that group agreed with that statement that uh, strongly agreed that Jesus is the only way to God. You had about 70% in the 30 to 39 age group, and then you have about 82% in the 40 to 50 age group, all these that agreed strongly. Um, and the range of answers, <laughs> another thing, we can look down here, that's crazy. Um, this other chart that shows you know, kind of the range of answers here with the born-again Protestants, you know, there's your uh, 65% uh, that strongly agreed. There's um, another, you know, looks like 15% more, 25% more that um, uh, either agreed. So you got a large, you know, you got a large group that, that of these people that either agreed or disagreed strongly. And then you got a small percentage, like 90% or 10%, up here that either disagreed with that statement or didn't or didn't know. So it's if you think about the answers to those two questions, does it it strikes me as that's it's weird. Because somebody, you know, a, a lot more people of this born again Protestant group were in agreement with the fact that Jesus is the only path to God, right? But when you go back to that first question about multiculturalism and or not multicultural uh, multiple ways to heaven, um, a lesser percentage of that was in a you know disagreed with that statement. So you would you would expect the numbers to be the same because they're basically the same question asked a different way. Um, so apparently, many of the people who thought. Muhammad, Buddha, and Jesus all taught valid ways to God, also thought that Jesus is the only path to a true relationship with God, which is in, I mean, doesn't make any sense. And so that leads to the conclusion that there's some pretty confused people out there again that, are belie- that supposedly are believers. Um, so how does this control compare to the 2010 survey? Well, the number of born-again Protestants who are definitely not pluralistic, and you would, you would call somebody who thought that Jesus, you know, Buddha, uh, Muhammad all taught valid ways, those, those would be pluralists. The, the, the people who are definitely not Protestants out of that born-again, uh, are pluralists out of that born-again Protestant group, probably about, um, has decreased by about 20% from 2010 to 2020. So that number is getting worse as well. Um, more and more born-again Protestants are either agreeing with pluralistic ideas or they don't know what, what to believe, okay? So many born-again Protestants are at best confused about whether or not Jesus is the only way to God, and, and that trend is getting, it's getting worse. And this, is, this has affected the spread of the gospel, um, 
the 2020 survey asked these questions. It said, when I refrain from communicating my religious beliefs with someone, it's usually because they can, they can get to heaven through their different religious beliefs. Two, we shouldn't impose our ideas on others. Three, the Bible tells us not to judge others. Four, it just doesn't seem to be that important, and I don't want to risk alienating them. Five, I'm not confident enough in what I believe. And six, I'm waiting for a better opportunity. Now, probe grouped these questions. So the first three questions, if they considered to be indicators of a pluralistic mindset. So they grouped that into a, a pluralism group. And then questions four and five, uh, they said that's an indicator of someone not being confident in what they believe, confident enough to be able to share. So um, they grouped that into a group they called not confident. And then I'm waiting for a better opportunity. That, that they called hesitant. So you got three groups. you got the pluralist, pluralism group that's answered these first three. Um, you have the not confident group that did the answered four and five. And then you have uh, the hesitant group that would have answered six. And here's the results. Here's born-again Protestants. And you can just see. Um, the pluralistic group... Across, I mean, it's, it's 65%, 70% of the born-again Protestants don't witness because of a pluralistic sort of reason. They answered, their answer to why they didn't uh, witness was one of those first three, three questions. And so pluralism is, is affecting um, the mindset and the thought process and the behavior and the witness of um, of these believers. So, here's some more questions. Uh, probe survey asked this question: Why did Jesus die on a cross? A. He threatened Roman authority control over Israel. B. He threatened the stature of Jewish leaders of the day. C. To redeem us by taking our sins and punishment upon Himself. D. He never died on a cross. E, he failed in his mission to convert the Jewish people into believers. And F, I don't know. And here's how they responded. Here's, pay attention to this column here. The vast majority. <laughs> this, this was a good, I mean, I guess a good result. 85% of them answered to purchase our redemption. So good for them. It's a whole lot higher than they've been answering all the rest of them. But the, the, the crazy thing is, is 15% of them didn't. Okay, once again, that could be one of those indicators that says maybe that that's the proportion of this group that really aren't believers. Um, here's another question. Jesus will return to this earth to save those who await his coming. And the answers range from strongly agree to strongly disagree. And this column here shows the range of the answers. You got about another good one. 90% of born-again Protestants uh, agree. Um, it's kind of interesting that a little less than seventy percent strongly agree. So you got you know less than seventy percent that strongly agree, but you got ninety percent that you got some wishy-washy guys there. Then you got you know ten percent that either don't know or they disagree. Um, another question: When he lived on Earth, Jesus committed sins like other people. Those answers range from strongly, from agree strongly to disagree strongly. 
and here's the results here. You got about 60, uh, looks like 66% uh, either 66% disagree or disagree strongly. So about 66% of these people um, believe that Christ uh, did not, Christ, Jesus didn't commit any sins like other people. Uh, he was sinless. But the weird thing is, is 33% either don't know or, or uh, agree, uh, agree with that, don't agree with that statement, I guess. Or agree with that statement. Yeah, they think Jesus was sin when he was here. That's a significant number of people that are supposedly following Christ. So here's the next one. Uh, this is a cumulative graph of all four of those questions. The first one is the question about why Jesus died on the cross. You know, he died to redeem us from our sins. You start with that, and there's your... Um, you're 85%. And then here's the number right here that um, that's 85% of these two, you know, 85% predominantly there. This next column is adds the second thing to it, that Christ is coming again to, to save us. He's going to return. So people that believe the first, the first statement and then the second statement, that's the number. So 60 65% believe that Jesus died to redeem sinners and he's coming to save us, okay? Then you get to this third one and 50%, roughly, um, believe the first two statements and uh, that Jesus lived without sin. So for all three of those things, you got about 50%. And then 33%, only 33% of them believed all four things about Jesus, that he died to redeem sinners, and he's coming again to save us, and that he lived without sin, and that he's the only way to heaven. So you got 33% there, uh, and I'm just kind of generalizing of these three columns. That's not a good number either. Um, so next question They had, how do they were curious about how do born again Protestants make moral decisions, and so you would expect most of the born again Protestants to they would look to the Bible for direction in moral decision making. They would use that as their guide for uh, for making moral decisions. So here's the questions that were asked. They asked, when you're faced with a personal moral choice, which one of the following statements best describes? how you will most likely decide what to do. Do what makes most people happy. Do what your family or friends would expect you to do. Do what biblical principles teach. Do what you believe most believers, most believe would do under similar circumstances. Um, do what seems right to me at the time. Do what will produce the best outcome for yourself or other. And here's what, um, here's the results. Looking at this column again, the born-again Protestants, you got about 47% of the born-again Protestants who say they do what the Bible teaches. It's 47% of that group. Um, which means that 53% of that group use another source for moral decision-making. And that's striking. And here's, look at this one. This is 30% 30, 30 of them 
say they do what seems right to them. That's this gray box here. And, you know, we've heard that before in Judges. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And those numbers, those are bad numbers. Uh, but they're worse. Because Probe asked some other questions in, in another part of the survey about uh, sexual morality. And you can use these questions about sexual morality to kind of, as indicators of whether a person who says they use the Bible for moral decision-making uh, actually uses the Bible for moral decision-making. And so these questions about sexual morality, they would require application of your uh, biblical doctrine to moral, those moral issues. So of the question is, of the 47%, this group here, who said they used the Bible for more moral guidance, how did they respond to questions about sexual morality? Did they respond based on what the Bible clearly teaches? So here's the two, here are two of the sexual morality questions. These aren't all of them. Number one, sex among unmarried people is always a mistake. Answers range from agree strongly to disagree strongly. And two, living with someone in a sexual relationship before marriage. You know, you see A, B, C, and D. And the choice that you would expect a doctrinal believer to, to answer would be D there. So the Bible clearly states that fornication, sex between people who are not married to each other, is wrong. And so you would expect, um, agree strongly up here, number one, and then um, living with someone in a sexual relationship is also fornication, so you would expect D down here so and probe defined someone who answered these two questions in a biblical way they called them quote a supporter quote a supporter of sexual purity that's how they define people who answered these two questions this way so here's what happened out of the 47 percent of born-again protestants who said they used biblical principles to make moral decisions Less than half of that 40% m make, let's see, less than half of the born-again Protestants who said they use biblical principles to make moral decisions are also supporters of sexual purity. So less than half of them who say they use biblical principles to make moral decisions actually use the Bible to make moral decisions about sexual purity. They say what they say something, but they don't, when they answer other questions, they don't really do it. Um, so either these other people, they don't know what the Bible teaches about sex, in which case they don't know the Bible well enough to know that fornication is wrong, or they only use biblical principles when it doesn't put them at odds with their own, you know, whatever they want to do or, or the culture. And either way of that is bad news. So... Once again, it's showing a, a, a total you know, a decline. Um, next thing we want to look at is church attendance, Bible study, and prayer. You know, we're looking at this, and there's some huge problems with the way these born-again Protestants think. You know, most of them don't even hold to a basic biblical worldview, much less an expanded, what we probe called an expanded biblical worldview. They tend to hold pluralistic ideas. They're confused about Christ and salvation. And more than half don't look to the Bible to help them make moral decisions. And the ones that do 
ones that say they do that don't really appear to actually do it, at least in the case of sexual morality. So assuming, if you assume that most of these born-again Protestants are believers, don't they know what the Bible says about these things? And if they don't, you know, why are they so biblically illiterate? So let's look at the things believers need to do in order to know what the Bible says. And that's church attendance, personal Bible study, and prayer. And here's the numbers. 57% of them attend church at least once a month. 42% read the Bible at least weekly. 65% pray at least daily. If you want to up the numbers a bit, 45% of them attend church at least twice a month. 22% read the Bible daily. 27% pray multiple times a day. And when you look at these numbers, it, it makes you wonder uh, where these believers are getting information about the content of their faith because, you know, you look back at this, that's not much interaction with, uh, with the Bible and content and no telling, you know, it's just not much. And this isn't, this isn't much either. Um, they aren't getting it from church. 43% don't even attend church once a month. They aren't getting it from personal Bible study because 58% of them don't read the Bible at least weekly. Um, and maybe the numbers, these numbers, that maybe they don't pick up people who are getting Bible teaching through, like, the Internet or podcasts or live stream or for whatever reason. And that could lead to, you know, the, the, uh, the data on the lower church attendance. But you would expect, in that kind of case, that the Bible study numbers might be, you know, you expect those to be higher. Um, and it looks like there's a kind of a tendency to pray, but if you really, if you don't know the Bible, and you really don't, if you don't know the Bible, you don't know that much, of, you don't know God, it's really hard to understand maybe what to pray. And maybe they pray, but they really don't know what prayer is or how, how to pray. Um, so, Based on these numbers, I mean, it looks like these born-again Protestants aren't taking the time to learn that much about, about what God's Word says. And so we can make some observations from these things. One of them is there seems to be an astounding lack of biblical literacy in this group of born-again Protestants. Biblical, uh, yeah, biblical literacy. Number two, um, well, let's talk about that a minute. It looks like these people are ignorant of the Bible. They don't know what it says, and if that's the case, they know what it says, they can't mature spiritually. Uh, they can't live by faith because there isn't, there isn't any content to that faith. You have to have content for what you believe in and, and, and to act in faith on it, and they don't have that. They can't discern truth from error. Uh, they can't properly make moral decisions, and they can't defend against the attacks of the world, the flesh, and the devil. They, they, they're defenseless. And it looks, also looks like that they're aware of some basic truths from the Bible, but they're attempting to syncretize or, or mix these in with truths from, from pagan thoughts and ideas that, uh, that pervade our culture, like pluralism and, and relativism. It's like the Israelites in Canaan. The Israelites disregarded what, what God had revealed to them, and their minds became infected with the worldview of, of these pagan Canaanite cultures that were around them. Um, so there just doesn't seem to be a high regard or desire for learning what's, what's in the Bible, and that's really, really hurting. Um, 
Next one, the church in America is in trouble. And that's like Captain Obvious. But in all the areas we looked at, there's been a decline between 2010 and 2020. The trend seems to be that the church is getting sicker. And, I'm, you know, we pointed this out. The younger age group of the born-again Protestants seems to be even less biblically grounded than the older age groups. And that could be a function of age, and they may become more grounded as they get older. And, you know, you could interpret some of those increases that way. However, they're not starting from a very good point, and everybody's going to need to make more of an effort than they apparently do to learn what's in the Bible. Next thing. Not many are attending church or studying the Bible on their own. Um, unless a significant number of these these born-again Protestants are getting instruction from some other place, um, they don't have any way of knowing what the Bible says. And what my fear is is that the information they're getting about the Bible and, and what the Bible says is being filtered through, you know, social media and, and pop cultural type sources that are going to, obviously we know they're going to distort that. And also, if, um, if people aren't going to church, they're disobeying Scripture. Uh, we know Hebrews uh, 10, 24, and 25, you know, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. I mean, we know this, but it's, we have to remind ourselves this, that the local church is critical to the life of a believer. Um, it's there to minister to believers. It's a place where we learn scripture, and it's a place where we, like Hebrews said, stimulate each other to love and good deeds. It's a place we encourage each other. It's, it's a place we love each other. It's a place where we serve each other. It's a place where we help, we keep each other in line and grow spiritually. And if you don't go to church, you cut yourself off from, from God's biblical support system. Um, and if you don't go to church, you cut yourself off from opportunities to minister to your brothers and sisters in Christ when they need it. So when believers cut themselves off from a local church, they weaken themselves, but they also weaken, weaken the whole body of Christ. Next observation, children are in danger. If Christian parents aren't biblically literate, and if they aren't attending a church, where are their children getting biblical instruction? That's why the children are in danger. Many may not even come to faith. The ones that do won't grow spiritually and won't be able to defend themselves against the thoughts and ideas of our culture. They're going to they're be helpless. Uh, young people spend most of their time at school and with the peers, and will be they will be influenced by them unless they're given a, a good, strong, biblical foundation for their faith. Next thing, the culture is in danger. Um, you know, one of the things we talked about earlier was that there's probably a, still a significant number of Christians in our culture in America. And we also said God's certainly able to use us to influence the culture if we are faithful servants. However, if we Christians continue down this path of biblical illiteracy, we are going to be unequipped to spiritually influence our culture. First um, Peter 3.15 says, But sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that's in you. 
yet with gentleness and reverence. So the question is this, if you are biblically illiterate, how can you make a biblical defense? If you can't make a biblical defense of your belief, how are you going to influence anybody? So our culture is in danger. If, our, if, our, if these numbers uh, about these born-again Protestants are any, anywhere indicative of what's going on with Christianity, you know, believers in our culture, um, we, we've got to we got to suck it up. Um, our country is in danger. If Christians are no longer able to spiritually influence our culture, our country will become more and more paganized in its way of thinking. I mean, we're 55% is paganized, so we're there. Um, and a godless culture is going to elect godless leaders. And we're already... We're already down that road. I mean, we're fighting. We're, we are fighting an uphill battle. So the question is, how do we get here? There we go. Let's go back to that. To help us think about what to do, let's look at what happened in Israel between Joshua's generation and the end of Judges. After God had delivered the promised land to the Israelites. If you remember, Joshua called the nation, of the nation of Israel together at Shechem. And he addressed them one more time just before he died. Here's what he said. It says, Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and truth, and put away the gods which your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. If it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve whether the gods which your fathers served, which were beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. The people answered and said, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For the Lord our God is he who brought us and our fathers up out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage, and who did these great signs in our sight and preserved us through all the ways in which we went among the peoples through whose midst we passed. The Lord drove out from before us all the peoples, even the Amorites who lived in the land. We also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. Now in Judges 2, 6 through 7, we get God's evaluation of Joshua and his generation. It says, When Joshua had dismissed the people, the sons of Israel went each to his inheritance to possess the land. The people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who survived Joshua, who had seen all the great works of the Lord which he had done for Israel. That's a very commendable statement in the Bible about a generation of... I mean, Israel didn't get much of that. <laughs> they had a, that's a good report. Um, they got a good report card there. So, the generation of Israelites who God used to conquer the land served the Lord. Notice that. Served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who survived Joshua. They started out in the right track. Now, look what happened. It says, Then Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110, and they buried him in the territory of his inheritance in timnath Harris, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gaash. All that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord, nor yet the work which he had done for, for Israel. There arose another generation who did not know the Lord or what he had done for Israel. And we know what this led to. Then the sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. 
And they forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who brought them out of the land of Egypt and followed other gods, sprung among the gods of the people who were around them and bowed themselves down to them, and thus they provoked the Lord to anger. And the end of Judges, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So Israel started out serving God, and in a few generations they turned away from God and turned to other gods and everyone, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. They rejected, they rejected God's standards of behavior and replaced it with their own. And it didn't take very long. It was quick. I've read, I've read some commentaries where people were saying it took one generation. Um, it wasn't very many generations. How does this kind of thing happen so quickly in a culture? First, let's see what we can glean. Let's see what we can glean from these passages in Judges. Um, let's look back at the Joshua generation in Joshua 24. Um, and we've, we've just read that so I'm not going to read it again but the Israel of the Joshua generation was characterized by a belief in God and a desire to serve him that was the character of their, of their generation all of them knew what God had done for them from the exodus to the conquest some of them had experienced all of it um, like Joshua um, and everyone had experienced the miraculous provision God had made for them in the wilderness and military victories God had done for them, you know, both before and after they crossed the Jordan. They, they knew God. God had taught them a whole lot of lessons during that time period. Um, they had learned a lot about his character and his attributes because of what he had done for them, because of his discipline of them just because of this, uh, all that he had revealed himself to him, his words and his works. And because they knew him, they desired to serve him. So let's look at what we could say characterized, again, the, the generation after, generations after Joshua. It says, they didn't know the Lord, nor yet the work which he had done for Israel. They were characterized by unbelief, which was connected with an ignorance of what the Moses and Joshua generations had clearly learned about God. The, these, the apostate generations of Israel after, after Joshua, they forgot about his power. They forgot how he had delivered them out of Egypt and what he'd done to Egyptians in the process. They forgot about his discipline. That whole generation of them died in the wilderness because they refused to obey and enter the land at Kadesh Barnea. They forgot about how he gave them food and water and kept their, kept their clothes and shoes from wearing out for 40 years in the, in the, the whole time they were wandering around. They forgot about his faithfulness to his promises that after 40 years of wandering he brought them into the land and defeated their enemies in the land. He forgot his, they forgot his law and the covenant that he had made with them. I mean pretty much they forgot the whole book of Deuteronomy um, because it revealed exactly what God had done. It revealed what God expected. It revealed exactly what God wanted. And it revealed what was going to happen to them if they forgot about God. And if you read through the book of Deuteronomy, it was, it, it's all there. And they apparently, between one generation and another, they, they completely ignored or forgot what was in there. I mean, they eventually forgot it. They probably ignored it to begin with. Um, 
And I think that's what's happening. That's related, or it's, it's, it's kind of what's happening to the church in our American culture. We started out in a pretty good place. Uh, our nation started out as a God-fearing nation. People took the Bible as God's word and, and, for the most part, tried to live by it in faith, or at least most of the population accepted its, its moral and ethical principles early on. And though there were certainly pagan influences you know, even early in our nation, uh, the church in America was strong, and America's morals and ethics were derived from biblical morals and ethics. But for some reason, like the Israelites, our country has, in a sense, become, we've become predominantly a people who do not know the Lord or yet the work he has done. I want to look at, I, I remembered this. I think Alex brought it up a while back, but I thought it was interesting. This is uh, George Washington's Thanksgiving Proclamation of 1789. And I want to read through that, and I want you to think, can you imagine this coming out of our Congress and presidency now? It says, By the President of the United States of America, a proclamation, whereas it is the duty of all nations to acknowledge the providence of Almighty God, to obey His will, to be grateful for His, benef- for his benefits, and to humbly to implore his protection and favor. And whereas both houses of Congress have by their joint committee requested me to recommend to the people of the United States a day of public thanksgiving and prayer to be observed by acknowledging with grateful hearts the many signal favors of Almighty God, especially by affording them an opportunity peaceably to establish a form of government for their safety and happiness. Now, therefore, I do recommend and assign Thursday the 26th of November next to be devoted by the people of the United States to the service of that great and glorious being who is the beneficent author of all the good there was, that is, or that will be, that we may then all unite in rendering unto him our sincere and humble thanks for his kind care and protection of the people of this country previous to their becoming a nation for the signal and manifold mercies and the favorable interpositions of his providence which we experienced in the course and conclusion of the late war for the great degree of tranquility, union, and plenty we have since enjoyed, for the peaceable and rational manner in which we have been enabled enabled to establish constitutions of government for our safety and happiness, and particularly the national one now lately instituted for the civil and religious liberty with which we are blessed, and the means we have of acquiring and diffusing useful knowledge and in general for all the great and various favors which he hath been pleased to confer upon us. And also that we may, we may then unite in most humbly offering our prayers and supplications to the great Lord and ruler of nations and beseech him to pardon our national and other transgressions to enable us all, whether in public or private stations, to perform our several and relative duties properly and punctually to render our national government a blessing to all the people by constantly, constantly being a government of the wise, just, and constitutional laws, discreetly discreetly and faithfully executed and obeyed to protect and guide all sovereigns and nations, especially such as shown kindness unto us, and to bless them with good government, peace, and concord, to promote the knowledge and practice of true religion and virtue and and the increase of science among them all and us, and generally to grant unto all mankind such a degree of temporal prosperity as he alone knows to be best. Can you imagine that happening now we've gone from that 
to a culture that doesn't think it needs God at all. We, we think that we can live without him. And this change in our culture has affected the church in America, as we can see from the answers to these questions. Instead of being a biblical influence in our culture, the church is being influenced by our culture. And this has been going on for years. And it's just like the Israelites forgot God and, and the pagan cultures around them infected their beliefs. The church is forgetting the Lord and all the work he has done and is being infected by the pagan ideas that, that permeate our culture. So the question is, what do we do? If we can biblically diagnose how the church got here, we can figure out a biblical response. If even the church in America is getting to the point where, you know, in a sense, it doesn't know the Lord and all the work it's done, the church needs to change. Um, now, I'm, returning, I'm referring to the church in the biblical sense, the church being all believers in Christ, the body of Christ. And so when I mean that the church doesn't know the Lord, I don't mean that they, you know, the church includes unbelievers. I don't, I'm not talking about unbelief. I mean that the church doesn't know the Lord in the sense of the kind of knowledge that comes from fellowship with God through a mature knowledge, knowledge of and desire for his word and living it by faith. And in this sense, the church needs to know the Lord and all the work he has done. So here's some suggestions about how we can, what we can do. We'll start individually. Each of us needs to make sure that we know the Lord and all the work that he's done. We have to be diligent and take the time to study the Bible. We have to believe what God has revealed to us in the Bible and be committed to living it by it in faith. No matter what you know, we think or our own desires are or what the culture may throw at us, and this has never been real easy. I mean, our flesh always wants us to do something different. And we're always surrounded by, by people and temptations that tempt us to do something different. Satan loves to do that. But the state, of, the state of our culture is making it a whole lot harder. Next thing we need to do. Each of us has to do what it takes to make sure our families know the Lord and all the work he has done. So... Those with children still at home need to be diligent about training them up in the ways of the Lord. In Deuteronomy 6, God commanded Israel to do that, and I, and I believe that their failure to obey that command was a huge factor in their apostasy. And in the New Testament, Ephesians 6.4, Colossians 3.21, command us to train our children, and I'm convinced there that our failure to do that um, is a huge factor in the decline of, of the church. Uh, parents are responsible for making sure their children are trained so that the next generation doesn't forget about God. Those of us with grown children, we need to encourage our children who have children to be diligent about training their children, and we need to help them however we can. Next. We need to serve in a local church. We've already talked about that. The local church is critical to the life of a believer. It's there to minister to believers. And when we cut ourselves off from a local church, we weaken ourselves as, as well as the, the whole body of Christ. We're going to need that. We've got, the way the culture is going, we have to be able to 
to come together and minister to each other. We can't uh, ignore that or else we're like, you know, you're like a lamb that's way off away from the herd and it's going to get eaten by whatever predator comes around. That's what it'll be like. Um, you can't withstand that. And we need the church to, to uh, be the place where we can get support and encouragement and help and serve. So the next thing is, deals with the church. The local church must be committed to teaching the entire Bible accurately. Uh, local church is still the best source for instructing believers and helping them grow in the knowledge of the Bible. We, as a, as a church, as a local church, we have to do our job to make sure the Bible is taught accurately and clearly, and we can't shy away from teaching hard passages or or being afraid of teaching in depth and maybe people won't understand it. We have got to be able to, to teach the whole counsel of God and do it right, and that's how we equip each other. We have to evangelize and disciple others. We have to share our faith and take every opportunity God gives us to bring others to Christ as well as teach them what we can about the Bible. We have to make sure that we're equipped to do that. At this point in our culture, you know, we can't assume people know very much, if anything, about the Bible or the gospel. You know, used to, you could be able to, you'd have common terminology. People knew who Jesus was, and they don't know now. Um, we have to be able to, to prepare, we have to be prepared to interact with uh, this, this culture in the same way that Paul you know, kind of had to approach the Gentiles in, in Acts. We can't rely on common biblical knowledge or common cultural ethics. We're going to have to be able to evangelize in ways that will be much, much harder than they were even a few generations ago. We have to equip ourselves to be able to do that, and that takes work. Um, we have to be above reproach. Um, we need to make sure our behavior is above reproach. Uh, in Titus 2, 7 and 8, Paul's instructing Titus, and you know Titus is a leader, and he's, he's left with the church there in, in Crete. Um, and Paul's telling him, he says, In all things show yourself to be an example of good deeds with purity and doctrine, dignified, sounded speech, which is beyond, sounded speech, which is beyond reproach, so that the opponent will be put to shame having nothing bad to say about us. Unbelievers are thrilled when our own behavior gives them the ammunition to shoot us down. We're just handing them the gun. Our behavior very well may turn people away. Our behavior can also dishearten and weaken uh, other fellow believers. So we have to be really, really careful. I mean, it's, it's always been hard, obviously, living living right is always hard we have to think think before we act um, you know how is this going to look how is this going to be received um, we have to just we have to pay attention last thing if things get worse we must not be discouraged we already know that God's plan for the for history and in the course of things things are going to get worse before the church is raptured. Um, first, or Second Timothy tells us that. Uh, Realize in the last days of difficult times will come, for men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, 
without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. It says, avoid such men as these. We know it's going to get worse. However, we don't know if this is it. We don't know if this is worse. You know, we don't know that, you know, God in his mercy could turn things around and he could delay the end of these days for how long he wants. So we just need to do our job. If we do our job and God turns things around, then we can rejoice because we've been used by God to turn things around. But if we do our job and he doesn't turn things around, we can rejoice because we will prove him to be faithful servants to him. So either way, we can rejoice. But we just have to make sure that we are diligent and we, we do our job and not get discouraged because things look like they're, they're going bad. So let's pray. Father, we praise you and we thank you for who you are. We know that your plan is that your plan is your plan. And um, we also know that you've told us to be prepared that things are going to get worse. Um, we pray that you would uh, grant us revival here in our culture in America and, frankly, across the whole the whole world. Please help us as believers uh, be diligent to study your word, learn your word, to live by it in faith, uh, to be committed to that, uh, to be able to take every opportunity to talk to others about you, to do all the things that we need to do to be able to serve you, uh, to serve you the way you want us to serve. Help us to be diligent at it, help us to be committed to it, uh, and help us to love each other in, in the process of all of it. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.